This week on Off Toggle Empire, <laughs> spooky season wraps up as Oklahoma State bites the dust first. Wake Forest was the idiot who decided to go looking for the missing cat on the spaceship. And somehow, Brian Harson survived to the end of the movie, but not the post-credits scene. No casualties in the Big Ten. Yet. <laughs> Off Chuckle Empire. Your source for Big Ten talk, it's Off Tackle Empire! You're listening to Off Tackle Empire, a Big Ten football podcast of some mixed repute. Um, I don't know. We're wrapping up spooky season as uh, Andrew was my second trick-or-treater. I am Steve Braun. I also go by Thumpasaurus. I'm with Andrew Krzyzewski, Michigan State correspondent. We're going to dance around a lot of sensitive topics and... (laughs) I don't, we'll see if it's really necessary. I mean, as you mentioned, being your second trick-or-treater here, well after 8 o'clock, I'm going to be working my way through this 12 pounds of candy you gave me. But it was a full week, if a short week, in the Big Ten here in Week 9. And with the calendar turning to November by the time we post, this will be, you know, the conference picture has certainly come into into clear view. And... I think ESPN's restraint about talking about the playoff all the time is about to go out the window because, again, by the time this is posted, we'll either be a few hours away from or the initial rankings will have already dropped. And then I don't think they'll be able to help themselves um, talking about it anymore. But And that will be great because, you know, of course, I feel like Illinois is going to be favored in the next couple of games, but... Um, the fact is that they play games they have the opportunity to lose. And until they play those games, there will then be serious discussion on ESPN of, well, Illinois also controls their own destiny for the college football playoff. <laughs> it's, Which is not untrue. It's not untrue. But I, it's also going to be interesting to see, because if Illinois were to run the table, it, you would get to 12-1. and one. You'd have a win over either Ohio State or Michigan, plus a few other decent wins along the way. And so then, what's the argument to keep you out? <laughs> I mean, Indiana, or Indiana. But in our week, goddamn Indiana loss. Was that even a week one loss, or was that a week zero game? That was week one. That was one. week one, yeah. It, but nonetheless, it's still the beginning of the season. And if the, if the rubric that we're operating under here is... If you're a major conference champion with one loss, especially the Big Ten or the SEC, you should be all but guaranteed to get in. The other thing, though, is because we know that this playoff format's not going to last much longer, I am afraid that if that situation were to come to pass, this would be the situation where they're like, no, actually, we're going to look more comprehensively at strength of team and strength of game flow and um, Illinois offends us, so we are not putting them on a field with Georgia or Alabama, which, by the way, you should be fine with. If you don't, I mean, nobody gives Michigan State credit for having made the playoff that one time because they didn't do anything there. We would have been better off just playing in another New Year's Six game that we had a better chance to win. Yeah, now, I'm not looking any gift horses in the mouth. If we lose out, I'll be uh, reasonably satisfied with this year. We've 
<laughs> I don't believe you for a moment. Well, lose out minus Northwestern. That's uh, yeah. Keep that's in mind, you happen. got you got Northwestern, you got Michigan State, and who else left on the calendar? Purdue and Michigan. All right, but still, you got Michigan State and Northwestern. If you lose out, you will be a shambles, and I will not blame you. But before we get to these hypotheticals and where to, where twos and why fours, we did have five games in the Big Ten to discuss this week, and so we shall roll through them once more in chronological order. I get to go last. Can't wait for that one. Can't before- wait. I, with about the same sincerity as Bart Scott had in that moment. So, in the noon game, big nude for the first time in over a month did not feature Michigan. Instead, we had Ohio State and Penn State. And we had the typical Ohio State-Penn State game flow, where the game is close for a really long time. And you remember, oh yeah, this is why those guys on that off-tackle thing are always jabbering about how talented Penn State is, because they have the bodies to run with Ohio State, not just for a drive, not just for a quarter, but for a long stretch. Until they get to the point in the game where the fact that the whole process for Ohio State, every piece of the machine is better polished and more coherently designed and better run. Well, the fact that Penn State, Penn State was sticking in this game despite two turnovers really early in the game. I, mean, I think, was it their first two drives they turned the ball over on? Might have been. Yeah, might have been. So, you know, as soon as that happened, I thought, oh, okay, well, th- this isn't going to last very long. But Ohio uh, but State only, I mean, they held Ohio State to a field goal on one of those drives. They held them to no points on the second interception. Yeah, and then their defense bowed up such that even well into the third quarter, I believe it was a 14-13 Penn State lead at one point, Clifford straightened himself out a bit from there. And the reason that I think in most part that this game was so close for so long is Ohio State really struggled to run the ball on early downs. So they were putting themselves in a lot of third and long situations. And even with a guy as good as Stroud and the receivers around him, Penn State was able to hold that down for a while until they got in rhythm with Marvin Harrison Jr., who will turn out to be, I don't think he's, I don't know if he's draft eligible this year. I don't think he is. I think he's got one more year. Probably figure that out. But anyway, um, just turned into a backbreaker for Penn State. And you think about this Ohio State team that for an undefeated Ohio State going into November seems to be getting kind of less talk than I thought they would, you know, with the returning Heisman finalist quarterback and a coterie of weapons around him. Still feels like for some reason they don't get quite the discussion that they normally would in this situation. I get part of that is because the national media is still excited to have Michigan back and now they have Tennessee to talk about. So, I mean, you've got this possible possibility of three serious candidates out of the SEC. So I get that there are plenty of other storylines. And I do. I, I have noticed that they're doing a better job of trying to talk about the rest of the sport. The Sickos Committee was pirated by ESPN this last week. So perhaps some realization that maybe there are casual fans who actually have a favorite team. Yeah, well, really, maybe that, like, actual fans matter more than people that aren't fans, that might be fans, if we show them Alabama enough. Um, What's so weird about this is that these are teams chock full of NFL talent with generational prospects at running back that can't run the ball. And I'm thinking to myself, why can't these teams full of NFL players run the ball? Of course... I mean, the truth, I mean, the, because if you think about it, the way 
with the skill of defensive linemen and linebackers and defensive backs and run support, NFL teams can't run the ball. Yep, that's exactly my point. How many NFL teams can run the ball? There's not all that many of them that do it well. I'm Green Bay Packers can't run the ball with a full roster of NFL players. Yeah, so it's when you say, well, they're full of NFL talent, why can't run the ball? Well, because stopping the run is always, always what opposing coaches want to do first. Understandably so. You need look no further than the battle for Paul Bunyan this year to see what happens if you don't stop the opponent's run. You just never have the ball. <laughs> so I think most teams understand that's the way forward. Well, such an interesting thing happened here. The way that this season started, you know, my theory had been last year and this year that Parker Washington was pretty good and should probably be the number one wideout for Penn State. Of yeah. course, he was not a big target in the Purdue game um, and really just hasn't been. So They tried it first in the Purdue game, but they, but they also gave up pretty quickly, which, uh, we bo- which we both thought was strange. For some reason... James Franklin has been trying to gaslight me into believing that Parker Washington isn't actually any good. But it turns out he remembered in this game that actually he is pretty good. He is worthy of a number one wideout workload. Could could it be that he was just sandbagging this dude's targets until this game? I don't know. I don't think that an an approach that holistic is something that, uh, first off, anybody should really do because it kind of implies that you weren't taking the Michigan game seriously. Um, but yeah, second, I, I, I don't, I second, it also seems a little too strategic for um, the head coach there. Yeah. And I, I wouldn't necessarily go that far anyway, but the uh, remarkable thing also is that scoring 44 points, Ohio state only scored four offensive touchdowns. Um, uh, Settled for a number of field goals. So Penn State kept this close by, again, bowing up in the red zone. um, Preventing success running the ball until kind of the backbreaker from from Henderson relatively late in the game. Going three for four on fourth down with some pretty good play calling. My worry was, I was, I listened to a lot of this on the radio, actually. My, My worry when they first, you know, went for it on, for each time they went for it on fourth down, they lined up in a formation out of which they've generally just run Clifford into the line. Yeah. You know? And <laughs> yeah. I thought... <laughs> I was like, they're not going to do the thing, are they? But uh, No, they actually they, they actually did the smart thing. I mean, uh, credit to Penn State. They, for as much as we rag on Franklin's game planning, this was a very good effort uh, strategically for them. It was. And so... Looking at the numbers a little deeper, yeah, it's hard to overstate how much trouble Ohio State had running the ball, which I think bodes ill for them, by the way, given how you know the game is likely to go against Michigan at the end of the game at the end of the season for all the marbles in the conference now. With this loss, Penn State falls out of the picture. It's a two team race in the division. Neither of them have anything in the month of November that's likely to challenge them. Well, I mean, Michigan's got Illinois, and Ohio State has Maryland. So each team has basically one remaining serious challenge to gear them up for that big game. Uh, but aside, So there's a 41-yard rush from Travion Henderson in here. But aside from that, 15 carries for 37, 38 yards. Only a couple appearances from Mayan Williams, who was shelved in this game. That's, uh, that's telling, by the way, of what the Ohio State staff really thinks of the running backs they have when you've got a competitive, tight game like this against an elite opponent. Who do they go to? 
they go to the absolute superstar back instead. They'd previously been doing this timeshare with Henderson and Williams, who is very talented himself, but you not gotta the same. get all your Pokemon the experience points, right? You can't have uneven levels here. Well, I mean, until this game, you could reasonably infer that Ohio State that it was like the last couple generations of Pokemon where you have experience all mandatorily equipped the entire game. So you can just roll with your starter the whole time and everyone else still gets better somehow. I did not know that that was a thing. It's a thing and it's, I apparently fans of the series hate it because it makes the game extremely easy. Not that it was ever much of a challenge, but yeah. anyway. So another takeaway from this game, I guess, is uh, that as I was watching college football in the aftermath of this game, and of course, you know, to, to your point about the playoff, I don't know that they're over it yet because I kept seeing unrelated games that had no bearing on the playoff picture. Think Iowa Northwestern. Uh, I saw multiple times uh, in in other games, you know, various analysts pick for who they think the top six are, and uh, a couple of these were like, okay, well, you got to put Ohio State at number one. They they're 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 now eight and zero, and they really you know they came back here and they they put Penn State away. Michigan first two out. You know, because their win against Penn State was too methodical. They built the lead too gradually <laughs> over too large a period of time. They didn't show that explosiveness that Ohio State showed to come back from a deficit. They didn't prove that they could really do that explosively like Ohio State did. So Michigan, you know, although they're undefeated and though they, although they big, beat Penn State by a bigger margin, it just wasn't as impressive to me as if they, you know, dicked around for a while. It, but and, it, and somehow <laughs> been trailing in the fourth quarter despite you know like a three nothing turnover differential in your favor. Right. Well, it, my <laughs> point is, by resume, Michigan is clearly the number one team in this conference right now. You can say what you will about who you think the best team is, but Michigan's got the best resume. I don't think there's really any two ways about it. Let's see what Notre Dame ends up being because Michigan. Remember, Notre Dame did just get a very good win over Syracuse, but first month of the season, Michigan didn't go anywhere, and you could argue this: the only decent team they played is still Penn State. Yeah, going into November, they Maryland. had Maryland. Yeah, Maryland is Maryland is one win from being ranked. They're right on the fringes. Of yeah, the probably. Top I mean, they'd be seven and two at that point if they yeah. weren't ranked. It would be just further proof of one non-factor. But so anyway, to finish discussing this game, then. We had a total of uh, 45 combined points in the fourth quarter after when the game was going into its 16-14 at that point. So basically that was the point where the talent started to win out in individual matchups for both offenses. Again, especially with Marvin Harrison Jr. where it was, man, big catch after big catch to put this game away. Didn't that find, man should not get into the end zone, but I think 11, 10 or 11 for like a buck 85 uh, and constantly moving the chains still on third and longs. Like, they were still in third and eight, third and 11, repeatedly. Huge game from him. And if you had gone into this season and said, all right, so Chris Olave and Garrett Wilson are both gone in the NFL, and Jackson Smith and Jigba is going to give you about 20 snaps by Halloween, you would probably assume that Ohio State's offense would have some kind of problem. But the thing is, again, beyond those guys, there's still like Buka and Harrison Jr. and Fleming. So... That the machine keeps rolling maybe shouldn't be a surprise, but it's still, again, a thing you can't help but boggle at. For Penn State, it becomes a let's get to a New Year's Six season, which 
I think it's still a notable achievement. How much longer that's the case, who knows? Because, again, in another couple of years, Penn State's still going to be in position for a playoff spot after losing two games like this. So you're going to have teams vying for a national championship that are 10-2, and two, did not beat the two best teams in their conference. Penn State, let's see. So I don't think – is it possible Penn State's going to go the entire season without beating a ranked team and get to 10 wins? It depends entirely what Purdue does. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway. Because it's not going to be Auburn. Well, no. Uh, <laughs> rest in peace. The Brian Harson era, one of the least, well, one of the worst fits I've ever seen. <laughs> so, okay, actually, Maryland is also a good chance for them to beat a ranked team if they can win the game. Okay, that's right. Depending on, yeah, we'll see how that goes. But anyway. So, this, this game was... Uh, Again, it's a six-point game with five minutes to go until, yeah. It wasn't just Henderson's touchdown. It was an immediate pick six. So, really the drama after Henderson's was if you had the spread, which to my knowledge closed about 15 and a half. And if you've got Penn State to cover the whole game, you're thinking, you're you're sitting pretty, and all of a sudden, (laughs) in a matter of minutes, they are down 20 points. Ohio State does that so often, too, where a team will be with them close and then with a big play on offense and either a special teams or defensive play, they just crack two touchdowns off on you in the span of, like, 30 seconds. And it's like, oh, crap. But Yeah, because in the, in the fourth quarter, of course, there were, you know, the two back-to-back Ohio State drives, one of which was set up by an interception. They were 35 seconds and 9 seconds, which was touchdown drives. Right. So for Penn State, I think you're – sort of looking forward to next season now, even though this is still a good team and there is still plenty left to play for, bowl positioning being basically the entire sum of that. But if you don't care about that, if it's a championship or bust, basically if you're an NFL fan and you're listening to this podcast, what are you doing, first of all? Uh, But if you're an NFL fan listening to this podcast, then you're just just looking forward to the draft picks. Um, So we'll keep moving. we got other games to cover here. Fortunately, this next one's not going to take very long because what is there to say about Rutgers 0, Minnesota 31? And could it have been worse than that? Yeah, probably. But at the pace and style Minnesota's trying to play, why would it have been? 134 yards for the Gers. Cycling back to Gavin Wimsat at quarterback, which I think is probably the move. Like, they're not... I mean, they're still... They're at four wins still. There's a whole month left to play. They have a couple winnable games left. Is there really that big of a difference in being in one of the... I mean, the other thing is, with the proliferation of bowl games, much better chance of going as a five-win team now than there used to be. Minnesota is the perfectly competent Big Ten West team that we have been proclaiming them to be all along. They are not, however, the absolute class of the Big Ten West like we mistakenly declared them to be after week four. I don't know what more could possibly be expected out of any analysis, because that's just where they are. Had they beaten the two front runners, um, really, had they gotten particularly close to beating the two front runners, we could have a different discussion. But you'd be talking about they haven't distinguished themselves. They haven't played Iowa or Wisconsin, the two previous standard bearers, who of course have fallen off quite a ways. But until you play the games, you can't say Minnesota's gonna beat them. I mean, Wisconsin beat Purdue, notwithstanding the fact that everything. 
and the trajectories of those two programs this year would tell you Purdue should have had the advantage in that game. Minnesota ran 53 times to 21 passes, got 253 yards on the ground. Uh, Mo Ibrahim got some uh, gushers at uh, on the sideline. They plainly don't intend to leave any tread on his tires no. for, for a possible. No. They 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 want to nobody. They want to make sure him. that he is remembered as a Minnesota Golden Gopher. Nobody is going to draft him, which is unfortunate because he deserves at least a cup of coffee, like a fourth round pick, a couple years in the league, for the amount of work he's put in, the injuries he's come back from. But they are going to run him to death. Um, it is really astonishing to me how long Melvin Gordon lasted before. The Broncos just decided to um, have him sit on the sidelines very sadly while Latavius Murray, a 30-something that they signed off the practice squad from the Saints, <laughs> gets all their carries. Got all the carries. Uh, I sent you, I on that very topic, I, I forwarded you and the Slack some information. Because when that phenomenon first came to my hand, I was like, man. But you know, when it ends for a running back, it ends quickly. I was like, man, he has carried a... He's, He's had a lot of carries. I wonder how many carries he's had. So I did a little bit of compiling. I know I sent you the numbers, and it's an insane number. Like, between his NFL and the major year, even, like, in college, the first couple years, he didn't do much because they had so much in front of him. But his two main college years plus the NFL, it's well over 2,000 carries. It is very rare for... I I went through a little bit of NFL uh, stats a few weeks ago. It is very rare for a running back to get 400 carries in a season and then ever complete a full season of games again. Yeah. Um, I can't remember who it was that did do this, but it was a Hall of Famer. Um, remember Sean Alexander winning MVP in 2005 and then he was like out of the league in three years? Yeah. Yeah, it, 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 it's, it was just, there's the threshold. Not unusual. And then to sort of complete the circle, as I was doing the Gordon research i was curious and looked into it and despite the fact that he really hasn't played for almost two full years now Le'Veon bell still has more than 300 more touches than melvin gordon in the same span of time Unbelievable. Uh, absolutely insane it's like adam corsett kicked a 77 yard punt by the way if we want to talk about good things that happened <laughs> to the girls there's not much else to come up with again they so many remarkable passing lines in the conference this year where you have quarterbacks with like fewer than five completions before halftime. Wimsat had three in this one, if I remember correctly. And it's just one of those things where like I, I feel like it didn't used to be this way. Like it's not like quarterback playing the Big Ten has been good for much of the time I've been paying attention, at least across like they've been they've been good individual players, but across the board. The attempts were lower. It's not exact but still, but it still feels like the games where you would see teams with one or two or three pass completions at halftime, like I feel like that didn't used to happen, did it? Or was I, I just know. not was I just not I paying know. that close of attention? To the I stats? guess I guess it's hard to really know without doing a deep dive. And I'm I'm absolutely I not. I just put out a hit single. Absolutely not going to do that. So there's not much else to say about this game. Minnesota studies themselves with Tanner Morgan back in the lineup, as you would kind of expect. Uh, Bullock, raise your hand. Well, all right, we'll we'll come to that in a minute. But uh, Rutgers falls to four and four with a month left in the season. Bowl game's got to be the goal there. If you get to the end of three seasons, you have not made a bowl. You have fired your offensive coordinator. Uh, does that not start to inspire some doubt? And if a an op-ed is penned in the post or whatever the New Jersey paper is, and nobody reads it, does it make? A sound. 
Well, their home games are Michigan and Penn State. We've covered this. Yeah. Home game is going to, you know, because we had those five games where the easiest ones are on the road, and they just lost the first one of those 31 to nothing. So, really, I, I don't think they're going to beat Maryland. Um, uh, but the, So, the question is, are they going to get another one of those stretches where, like, in four or five games, they're outscored 270 to five or something like that. I mean, if they have one of those types of stretches, that's the result that makes, whether they make a bowl or not. That's the result that makes people start to lose confidence it's, in the program. Yeah, it's do you look competitive after three full years? The fact is, it's, it is a little bit different in a situation in the Big Ten East where you have three Teams full of blue chips, and there's always one wild card this year. Maryland has ascended to that. It has traditionally been Michigan State's place. Um, but there is always... Indiana occupied it for a very, very brief for a hot second. moment in the sun. Inspiring hope. All right, so we've talked enough about the appealing games. We're going to talk about one now that surprisingly hit the over, um, not by a whole lot. Well, no, because I think the, the over settled at like 31 or something. Uh, so the game we're talking about now is Northwestern 13, Iowa 33. I'm absolutely livid. Over-under was 37.5. Really? Well, it's closer than I thought, but still. I'm absolutely livid that Iowa let Northwestern on the board in this. I placed my faith in them in JMC. Um, fix the Newell Post is absolutely in a shambles right now over miss this missed opportunity. I did not watch a moment of this game. I cannot assume it was especially interesting. There were 18 rushing yards for Northwestern. Uh, this game was on TV next to the one where I was watching the Illini game, and I would just go and uh, grab a peek of very confused-looking Northwestern offense and a pretty smooth-looking Iowa offense, which, of course, just goes to show you what a mess Northwestern has going on. Brennan Sullivan posted a stat line of 23 for 30, but he got 159 yards. That's remarkable. It, so, really um, accurate but inefficient. A lot of passes to the line of scrimmage. A lot of, you know, we had five receptions by Evan Hall. There was... Well, yeah, but so, all right. What that means then is, yeah, you have, you have stat lines like this. Bryce Kurtz, 5 for 35. Hull, 5 for 25. Malik Washington, 3 for 22. They they've got, most of the most of the receivers who caught a pass had one of at least ten yards, but they did they didn't have any longer than seventeen, which in modern terms is absolutely unbelievable that you could go a game where you're actually completing passes and not have any not have anybody break free longer and not have any of those receivers break a tackle and make substantial yards yards after the catch. Uh, it's it's. A remarkably, as you said, inefficient passing game. Seven sacks for the Iowa defense. Or no, that's, that's wrong. It's efficient, but not explosive. Uh, but Fair anyway, enough. as you said. Yeah. Uh, yeah, seven sacks. So, yes, if you're going non-sack adjusted, Sullivan had 14 for negative 42 on the ground. Um, I mean, it's not so much that Northwestern's offense couldn't do anything against the Iowa defense until they really took their foot off the gas. That was that was expected that you probably could have predicted last year easily. It's how good Iowa's offense looked without changing anything but the opponent they were playing. Yeah. This is a real like this is a real um 
I don't know if there are any more alarms you can pull for Northwestern, but I'd sound them all right now. That, 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 that's a really, really bad defensive performance to make Iowa look competent. Yeah, the only, the only real distinguishing feature you could get out of this from the Iowa offense is, one, they did choose to feature Caleb Johnson at running back, and he looked pretty good, 13 for 93, 7 yards a pop. They also, 5.1 yards per rush. Which... Also, yeah, also got their receivers involved a little bit more in the reverse game as well. Um, a total of five carries between guys who were wide receivers. So they made a couple of minor tweaks. They would have won the game without those. And so, again, what they're probably going to try to tell you is, see, see, everything's good. We scored 33 points against a conference opponent. That's a team that's won the division twice in the last four years. How about that? Um, and nothing is going to change. And as you say, with challenging games left on the schedule, meaningful games left on the schedule, I would not actually expect this to signify substantial improvement from Iowa. As far as Northwestern goes, again, it's, I don't know what the build is here. I don't know what they're aiming towards. You know, they figure to lose Peter Skaronsky to the NFL draft at the end of this year, their best player by a wide margin. They've got a couple guys on defense who now and then look like they could be building blocks, but overall, this just isn't working. And so what, if Fitz fires both coordinators to buy himself some grace with the fan base if he even thought that was necessary, which he doesn't, that means that next year you're installing new schemes, you're still at a talent deficiency. Is the hope that in 2024 you're a 7-win team again? That's where you are at this point in Fitzgerald's tenure. It is possible if you hire the right people that you can make... I mean, I can't see how they could do materially worse on defense if they hire a new guy. And look no further than the team whose shirt you're wearing. Yeah. We're not talking about this year. Last year's Illinois defense was light years ahead of anything Lovey Smith put out. And it was basically with the exact same players. C.J. Hart was the biggest transfer. He got hurt in the first game of the year. Yeah. So, so it's it certainly... it. I mean, I, I just, like... We're talking about maybe it takes some time to put things into place to such an extent that you can compete and win meaningful things. But to improve from where Northwestern is defensively, I kind of think... That's not a big ask. Yeah, that's it really isn't. I mean, I, I just remember watching... The complete lack of pressure, the like, just it looked like they were playing with seven. As Spencer Petrus stood there with his feet looking like they were in quicksand and hit a wide open Luke Lachey for a touchdown to make it twenty to nothing. Just like, how are there any fans going to be left in the second half of this one? I well, almost <laughs> felt bad. Almost. <laughs> almost. I had to slip in the almost. So. Final match of the afternoon slate, Illinois 26, Nebraska 9. Even when Casey Thompson was healthy and playing, Nebraska wasn't really scoring points, but their offense moved enough that they could sustain some drives and keep their defense relatively sheltered from Illinois' steamroller offense. And then Thompson got hurt, and Nebraska's backups were not up to the task. That really was a big turning point. <clears throat> Thompson came out and... Threw a couple of really bad picks. I mean, just, I kind of thought, oh boy, you know, he might have missed just enough that that, that uh, 
he can take his head out of this game. And it may also have been one of those situations where it's like, all right, he's hurt, and then like ten minutes later, he's like, all right, I'm good to play. And it's like, yeah, maybe you're not. Maybe yeah. maybe we'll just see what the backups do in this one in an interim season where I can't imagine Mickey Joseph thinks at this point that he's got much of a shot of even retaining a position on the staff. So what do you do at that point? Well, you have an obligation to the players and to your assistants to let as many of them show what they can do as possible. So, yeah, that's 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 a fair point because these guys, you know, Chavo Purdy was a high-profile prospect at Florida State. So he's was, got yeah, stuff to play So for. was Logan Smothers. I mean, he was recruited for Scott Frost's very particular system and probably would have fit it pretty well. But as a runner who's terribly inaccurate for the most part, um, yeah, it, guys need to be able to compile their tape and do what's best for them after the season. My concerns about Nebraska for this Illinois defense were actually, actually looked pretty well founded in the early going here because you know Illinois did have that touchdown driver. They looked uh, you know very smooth at the beginning. Of course, that was a uh, uh, one play that was uh, you know they were able to to exploit a, a mismatch with Isaiah Williams, but then for a while. Uh, Nebraska's defense was kind of sniffing out everything they were trying to run with Chase Brown. They were getting him in the backfield uh, in big enough numbers that he couldn't break the tackles. And they were busting some explosive plays because Casey Thompson had enough mobility to evade the rush just long enough for someone to get past them. This is what I was worried about as far as uh, Casey Thompson being the most mobile quarterback that they've faced. Yeah. Uh, however, in addition, you know, Casey Thompson kind of went down on... Uh, he, it seemed like he was really trying to get everything back from those two interceptions in, in, in one play. He Under heavy pressure, he just tossed one up into coverage that got returned to the 10. So it's not even just that he got hurt. It's just that then after that, Illinois immediately went and scored a touchdown and then adjusted the offensive play calling to, to do some more stuff with the offensive line. Uh, one of the turning points in the game for the offense was uh, on their next drive, pulling the left tackle and left guard across the, the field and then... Uh, making a big hole for Chase Brown that way. Some good old-fashioned Big Ten shit. What I loved, later in the game, they showed the exact same look the other way, pulled the right tackle and right guard. But then, Tommy DeVito kept it and went off to the right. Oh, man. The uh, the defense absolutely bought that to the tune of about 20, 25 yards or something like that. There were some brain farts for the Illini. Tommy DeVito just kind of stepped out three yards short uh, of a first down early in the game when it was still pretty close. They had a situation where they called a, a trick play to a former quarterback, Isaiah Williams, and then there were no routes downfield. They lost 12 yards. Then they iced their kicker, uh, and cooler you, heads prevailed. You're not going to get the Illinois out of you all at once. Right? Yes, but the so. fact is, in the same game, they were able to, you know, calm down. I thought it was going to be a thing where, okay, 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 we're melting down. Let's just get into halftime and just try to. But no, they they scored two touchdowns, and that was kind of that was kind of it. Um, they played exceptional defense against Trey Palmer. Yeah, they have been very good against number one wideouts. Um, Tommy DeVito went twenty for twenty two. Chase Brown was limited to 149 yards, and Illinois moves to 7-1. It's just, uh, I said this in the Champagne re- recap. Before I would have said, man, I j- they're so good, I can't believe it. I'm actually starting to believe it when I see things like this happen, because 
there's enough data points to suggest that this really is who they are. Not that Nebraska is a great team, but you don't have to be a great team to win yep. the Big Ten West, though. Good, like, good teams, good teams will take care of business in this situation. Nebraska drops to three and five. It feels like this was really, this really slammed the door shut on a bowl. Yes, yeah, a bowl on the interim. I mean, again, the first game or two, there was a little bit of support for him sticking around. That's not going to happen. So, all right, let's put a bow on this season and talk about the thing. Uh, Michigan State 7, Michigan 29. Uh, on the field, this game was over when about midway through the second quarter, at that point it was 7-10 to 10 Michigan in front. Michigan State had driven down into goal to go. They got to a fourth and one from, I think, like the six-yard line. So maybe it wasn't goal to go. I think they could have gotten another first down. But anyway, yeah, because they needed a yard. So it's fourth and short, and they line up in this formation they used on an earlier unsuccessful fourth down attempt where they line up Thorne in the shotgun with a back basically in the pistol behind him and a couple of you know, like it sort of in line tight ends. And they called the same play twice on fourth and short. It didn't work either time. This very slow developing run play. When you know Michigan's got a crazy athletic defense and they have this hyper aggressive attacking style. They've got all their guys on the line. And so they start Eli Collins like seven yards behind the line of scrimmage. And don't even give the ball to him right away. It's like they snap and then there's like a beat before he gets the ball. Goofiest play design I've ever seen. And of course, it doesn't work either time. And the second time they tried it again, they were well in scoring position. Could have even taken a field goal, but their long snapper is hurt. And it's been an absolute disaster trying to kick the ball since then. So I understand why they went for it. And that's not even the problem I have. The problem I have is the play call they chose was a terrible play call. It had already not worked, and it sure didn't work again. I cannot stand fourth-and-one situations where you take the ball and start running backwards with it to give to a guy who is lined up seven yards deep. I will sit here and slander Tom Brady until the heat death of the universe, (laughs) but I will give him immense credit for this. That motherfucker can get a yard on fourth-and-one. Right, and it's. I understand that it's not a skill that every quarterback has all that well. And if also, you're a quarterback the size of Aaron Rodgers, you probably should be able to do it. Peyton God Thorne, damn it! I, I mean, Peyton Thorne's not a stick. Like if what it says to me is they Fuck don't. Jordan Love, give me big time, Tommy. What it says to me is they don't trust their offensive line to make any kind of push in an obvious sneak situation. So what they do by lining up these two tight ends is they make all these gaps and they hope that their back can make the defense wrong and get enough space to get to the first down instead. It, but it didn't work because the offense, I mean, they've, they, if, that's, if I've got that correct, then the coaching staff is actually on to something in the first place because the offensive line is awful. But they've misassessed the extent to how bad they are because... It doesn't matter how many gaps there are if two or three defenders are past the line of scrimmage before the running back has the ball, you know? Um, so anyway, that's a micro example of why this doesn't work. But actually, when I was writing it, I started writing this outline during this game for all the games, as I usually do. Whenever I'm watching the night game, I'll start 
outlining the rest of the week's games. And in the first quarter, before I lost patience and started playing on my Switch while I was watching the game, uh, I wrote, after Jarrett Horst committed a drive-killing penalty very early in the game, that an underrated part of Michigan State's struggles this year has been their complete lack of discipline. And after a string of very... So they took the ball first to open the game, which they should because they almost always give up a touchdown drive to the opponent if they don't. On their first drive, they had a very the string of very well-called and well-executed plays on their scripted drive. And then they committed penalties on four straight plays, which set the tone for the entire night, which was they're not going to execute sharply and they don't have the talent edge to overcome that. I have a question. Sure. How many com- penalties were committed by... A guy who, at this point, I can only call Bojack Horstman. I don't know. I mean, if you're asking for a count from him on the season or on this night, I don't know. But because, he's had he's had unsportsman like he's in, the problem with himself. He's had unsportsman like calls in consecutive games now. It has been his calling card the entire time. In the first couple games last year, when he started and he had a couple penalties like that. Fans kind of liked it because it had been a while since we had an offensive lineman with an edge and he was also visibly their best offensive lineman. But that's the problem when he's visibly your best offensive lineman is when you get to a point when you need to be at a higher level of execution and discipline and he's still committing dumbass penalties after the whistle all the time, you can't bench him because you don't have anyone else. Because like, you know, it's kind of like a Taylor Lewan thing, right? Except have you seen Jared Horst's tweets because I don't know if it's really comparable. No, he's also never threatened to rape a rape victim. So he's nothing like Taylor Lewan. Oof. No, I was also... The comparison I probably should have gone for was the, uh, the the immortal gif of Illinois linebacker Jonathan Brown looking left for a ref, looking right for a ref, and then, and then <laughs> kicking a Northwestern guy in the nuts. Yes. <laughs> and uh, then getting flagged anyway because he didn't look straight ahead. I I wish it was anything... I mean, it's they never show a replay of what happens in these because like, they don't want to call attention to the dirtiness of football or anything. But anyway, so what I wrote before I stopped paying attention to the finer details and writing about them was that that's, that penalty set the tone for the entire night. Boy, did I not know how right I was. Um, so before we get to the postgame thing, the rest of the game was remarkably uninteresting. That uh, score, unless you played, unless you had fantasy interest in Jake Moody. Sure, I did too, because I had a feeling that's how this was going to go. Because the one thing Michigan State's defense has had this year is stoutness in the red zone. And sure enough, they forced Michigan to attempt five field goals. They made all of them. Um, and they wouldn't have needed any other points to win. But that tells you that this game could and probably should have been much more out of hand, it, which is strange because given the reaction from Michigan's program in the last 24 hours, given some mouthing off by Michigan players before the game, it sounded like they were going to try to run it up if they had the opportunity. But when they had the goal-to-go situations and the red zone situations were on third down, they sure weren't going to the throat very much. They were content to win this game like this. Didn't cover the spread. Um, not to say that they weren't far and away the better team. That was obvious. But I was a little perplexed that they didn't get more aggressive until the game was already basically over. And then when they did try to get aggressive, it was obvious it was coming and it didn't work. It was, it was kind of token, just like, yeah, oh, by the way, gonna, by the way, just fuck you. Now we're going to do this and it's not going to work, but we're going to do it. The post-game incident, I almost, I don't even know what there is to say. I, I've... So, well, no, there is, there is something that has to be addressed here, which is I have seen plenty of my fellow Michigan State people trying to find an angle 
to defend or justify this, don't do that. If you're that guy, well, I mean, certainly if you're in my fan base, stop it, you asshole. But if you're a fan of another fan base and a situation like that happens and you feel the need to defend your team, ask yourself, what am I doing right now? Why am I defending these clearly indefensible actions just because they happen to wear the uniform that I cheer for? Yeah, see, I'm, I've been piecing this together, figuring out, okay, look, from a crowd control perspective, where could an intervention have prevented this from happening? Obviously, the most obvious place for preventing this happening is just the people don't assault the guys. Yeah, that's the obvious one. There's also the fact that Michigan has now had problems with the tunnel in consecutive home games. And for them to say, oh, yeah, what tunnel for 80 years? Never been a problem. No, there's never been a camera pointed at the problem. Well, the tunnel itself may not have been a problem, but clearly right now... The way they're entering the, the tunnel way, is a problem. Yes. Right now, something is something, something needs to be fixed with the way that they are handling things with the tunnel. And I, you know, I don't know to what, it, you know... Who is controlling that logistically, right? It's all that comes out of the program. This is a multi-million dollar operation. They got operation staff for days. This is not something that should have escaped their notice. And the fact that two weeks ago, they dismissed James Franklin as whining or small fry or whatever. And then this week, of course, they get to be the aggrieved party in this thing. And they don't have to address anything that they might have done to contribute to it. None of which takes away any of the culpability here. The four primary players involved have already been suspended indefinitely. Investigation is ongoing. Perhaps there will be other suspensions that arise from it. I don't know, and I can't dispute it, but in the aftermath, I can't fault anything Tucker has done. In the pre-math? Before-math? The anti-numbers. In the anti-numbers. Plainly, Mel Tucker did not approach this psychologically from an appropriate standpoint. This is a risk, by the way of bringing in transfers from all over the country who do not grow up in or even near this rivalry. It's also a very big departure from Mark D'Antonio, who very openly lived for this game. He did. I don't think there's... Like, He's the guy who changed the thing about the Paul Bunyan trophy where you'd celebrate it with the locker room. He's the guy who decided, no, now we're going to parade it around the stadium. In 2008, yeah. that was a decision he made... To consciously elevate the level of rage in this rivalry game. Well, it took a long time for Michigan to get involved in that level of rage, but now they plainly are. So, I suppose we'll never hear about we don't care about this game again. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. We will next year. But, plainly Tucker did not have his players psychologically equipped for this game. That's kind of beyond dispute between the penalties on the field, the situation off of it. Um, that's a bad job. This, is a, this has to be the low point of the tenure. I don't think it's a fireable shortcoming in and of itself. He wasn't there. I don't know what he would have done differently on the spot. And so while this isn't a fireable offense in and of itself, you know what this very much reminds me of? Although it's it's not the same caliber of incident, is it's the Juwan Howard thing where this better never happen again. There better yeah. never there better never be anything like it. Because if that happens, even if it's kind of a minor incident, you gotta go. There's no ifs, ands, or buts about it. So We'll see how this plays out. Again, the four guys involved are suspended. That includes the starting safety. If you were to assert that, well, none of these guys matter, so they're fine with letting him go. No, Angelo Gross has played basically every snap for Michigan State this year to varied effect. But it's plainly not a good look. The and line moved by six points when those suspensions were announced. Really? The upcoming game, yeah. I, I was surprised that it was that much. Of the four guys who were suspended... Two of them really don't play. 
One is a backup defensive end, and one is a starting safety. But again, not a defense that is not very good defending the pass. Six points. I can't believe that. Well, I well, know. early line movement is an exact science, and a lot. Of times. Well, so I mean, the last number I saw was basically ten. So you're saying that it started from four and moved to that? No, I'm saying it. I believe that it's moved to like sixteen. Oh well, in that case, I think that's a bit much. I would agree. That I suppose perhaps that's an assessment that Michigan State is psychologically cooked. I think we'll know in the first couple drives on Saturday, but hey, we are revealing a little bit of our preview secrets here, aren't we? You're going to have to tune in to the preview episode if you want more on the inter-podcast clash that I can't pretend I care, dude. I simply can't. Um, but that concludes the week that was in the Big Ten. A quick turn around the country. Kansas State gave Oklahoma State maybe their worst loss of the Gundy era, like ever. A stunning turn of events. We are at the end of October, which means that we kind of know what teams are. Yeah. Amount of data for a team yeah. to be top. You don't generally get yourself into the top ten at this point of the season without being pretty good, or at least winning a bunch of games. And to lose which... forty-eight to nothing, and not to like. A, a team chock full of NFL prospects, you know, at every position and in the three deep, but to Kansas State, no slouch themselves, but we're not talking about a program that's got starting receivers on every NFL roster. So aside from Adrian Martinez and Deuce Vaughn, how many players do you think you could name on K-State's roster? Because that's it for me. Well, Will Howard only because I had Adrian Martinez last week. There you have it. So A couple weeks ago, whatever it was. So Kansas State with another impressive win. We've detailed already the extent to which they've dominated Oklahoma recently. And what this probably means is that now, with Kansas having fallen off, maybe Chris Kleiman becomes the guy who is the hot coaching candidate of every major program in search of a coach. And so they start snuffling around Manhattan like truffle pigs. Um, but given that he has a history in the Dakotas, and that's kind of the part of the country he's from. He likes wide open spaces, man. Yeah. I think about all you would say is, well, if you're a program like on the coast somewhere, you can you can kind of compare. You'd be like, all right, so you can see real far. And it's like, you don't walk on this because it's water. Like, it's the ocean. You don't want to walk on that. It's not like a grassland. But you see how it's also like, you know, see way off horizons far away. You see, you see how it's the same, see, right, those Coach? Are, those, are, those are ocean bison out there going past the horizon. Manta rays like yeeting out of the water. You ever seen a manta ray do that, by the way? No. They do. They jump out of the water and like they don't land gracefully. They jump out and they just like flop down onto the water in whatever pose. We saw these when we were on our honeymoon, and apparently we found out that scientists don't really know why they do that. For a while, they're like, well, they're probably trying to knock parasites off of their skin. So they jump out and the force of landing in the water awkwardly like that just blasts the parasites off them. But then they did further research. It's like, yeah, they do that whether they have parasites or not, though. So the best ex explanation we can come up with is, is they do it because it's hella fun. We think yeah. they just do it because it's just See, fun yeah, as hell I, to I jump like, out of I the like water. This and, thing where like yeah. science has yet to explain this behavior by this animal. I would like some scientists to study one of my dogs in particular. <laughs> do not understand why there is currently food all over the floor, and she hasn't eaten all day. She just wants to decorate the floor. <laughs> They need to entertain themselves, too. So all of which is to say, we hope that guys like Chris Kleeman stay at programs like they're at right now. Because, I mean, you know why Bill Snyder's name is on the stadium at K-State? 
because he was there forever. And it helped that he was very successful. But even if he hadn't been very successful, the fact that he was... Uh, you, know, you know, his first year in 1989, the organizers of the Coca-Cola Classic disinvited Kansas State from it because they sucked too bad. <laughs> like, he was taking it over, but the, the, the deal is that game, you know, that was that one in Japan, right, where they would, yeah. they would, they would get, you know, like a Power 5 type school to give up a home game, and they'd usually just go with ones that were underperforming, but, you know, usually you want to make a good game, you know, because then, of course, you get a bigger fish to be the, the other team, and so you, you, they don't have to give up a home game. But I guess then they realized once they had Kansas State on the docket, oh, wow, they're, like, really bad. This was <laughs> this is hurting our, we don't want our they, they were, product they were to be associated with winless this. winless in 87 and 88. And then, so yeah, Kansas State has had a beef with Japan for that uh, length of time. But anyway, uh, Sam Hartman somehow managed to play the worst game of his life, even though he also lived through last year's ACC championship game. Extremely high bar to clear, guys. We talked about this when it happened, but in what was a competitive game at that point, the broadcast chose to begin telling the story they had clearly been waiting for the moment to tell about why Sam Hartman wears the number 10 in honor of a childhood friend of his who had tragically passed away. His brother, I think. I thought it was a friend, but in in any case... Where's it in honor of someone very close to him who had passed away? And they get like two sentences into this story and he throws a terrible... I don't remember if the first one was a pick six. I think the first one was a pick six. And so that happens and then, you know, Wake Forest gets the ball right back because that's what happens after a pick six. And the broadcast is like, damn the torpedoes, sad story ahead. And they keep on telling the story and he throws another interception. I don't think that one was returned, but I think Pitt did then immediately score like a couple of plays later. And then I don't remember if he threw another interception before they benched him or if that was it and they pulled him after that. But either way, it, it was a disaster of a game because they, they're telling this very moving story about him. And he just, it, it was a couple of bad throws, guys. It's not like he was pressured or the ball was tipped at the line. Like, no, it was, he just... Terrible decision, threw it right to a defender. And, of course, I kept having to remind myself, he cannot hear the play-by-play. But it sure seemed like he could. It sure did. <laughs> it sure seemed like it. But anyway. So, against Louisville, who, of course, they're now 5-3. and three. It feels like Scott Satterfield might be safer than initially thought. He was getting he was getting himself into jams to see if he could get himself out of them. But uh, Wake Forest climbed out of a 13-0 hole to lead 14-13 at the half. And then, here were the Wake Forest drives. A pick six, a fumble, a fumble, an interception, a fumble, a punt after a loss of five yards, a pick six, a fumble, an interception, and then a touchdown to cut it to 48 to 21. And so, are those all in the second half? Yeah. Those are eight turnovers in the second half. I mean... Unbelievable. Their their second best drive was... A punt. What's a three and out? Their 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 best drive was a touchdown. That was very. I mean, the definition of garbage time. It was fourteen seconds to go in the game. Yeah. Outside of that, the punt was the only time. I mean, I mean, honestly, the fumbles and the interceptions 
were they had two drives worse than each of those because at least those weren't touchdowns. <laughs> right, at least they didn't immediately result in six points. Oh God, Wake Forest is so much fun to watch. Thirty-five second or thirty-five third quarter points to Louisville. Yeah, <laughs> largely because of eight turnovers. I just cannot imagine a worse quarter of football has ever been played. It, it just it just defies all explanation. Yeah. Elsewhere, Cincinnati absorbed a second loss, this time at the hands of UCF, which clears the way for Green Wave to Sugar Bowl. That, I think, is one of the... Like, after you've been watching for a good portion of the season like this, don't you kind of get outcomes you can see that are possible? You're like, I want that to happen. I really hope that happens. Tulane going to the Sugar Bowl in New Orleans would be very cool. I hope oh, that no. Oh, no, that might be against my team. I don't want to play against Willie Fritz. I want to watch Willie Fritz do fun things to somebody else. I love Willie Fritz. Big yeah, I, I wouldn't be able to root for you, man. Even nope. though I assume you would be there if they went. Of course. Um, well, whatever bowl game Illinois goes to, I'm sure you're going to be there. But Elsewhere, um, UConn four wins before the calendar turns to November, all you haters. And they did this by... Beating Boston College for the first time ever on their 15th attempt. I was going to say, weren't they in the same conference for a while? Yeah. <laughs> That's yep. unbelievable. Not, not a uh, while. Boston College jumped to the ACC. Pretty soon, yeah. Um, but I assume their history goes back a little farther, but still, it is only 15 times. Boston College was held to three by UConn. Last year, they had... You know, what seemed like a resurgent year in Jeff Halfley's first season, they're a mess. Yeah, well, I mean, especially Phil Jerkovic was a guy who was brought up as a very long shot. I mean, not, I don't think anyone seriously mentioned him as a Heisman. Maybe I'm misremembering that, but... But, like, maybe, maybe like a third-team all-conference guy if things break... Reviewed as, like, an NFL prospect. Yeah, I mean, he's not a third-team all-conference. Yeah. My goodness, ACC's got a lot of good quarterbacks. Yeah, but still, a guy who's very much viewed as a centerpiece of what should have been a pretty good team, and... It, I mean, Zay Flowers has been really good. Um, they picked up Jalen Gill from Ohio State. They had weapons, but lose it. Like the writing should have been on the wall when you lose to Rutgers in the opening game of the season, and we've seen what Rutgers has become. So, anyway, still Jim Mora living in an actual haunted mansion like he's fucking Luigi. Um, four wins in UConn with UConn in his first season is. The, <laughs> I say this with I'm only half joking. What do you think they have to do for him to get Coach of the Year consideration? Like, National Coach of the Year Jim Moore Jr. at UConn. What's win he got? Set, win out sets, so that would be seven wins or eight wins? Seven wins. And he probably doesn't get more than a handful of votes from the most plugged-in writers, which means, you know, not many sports journalists, really. But Yeah, let's see what their remaining schedule is. UMass, that's winnable. That's a W. Liberty Biberty. That's a loss. <laughs> and then at Army, that also feels like a loss. Yeah, probably. I, I have no idea what Army is this year. None. Well, anyway, uh, Boston College is 2-6, and 0-4 and in ACC play, matching only the Virginia Tech Hokies, who damn near knocked off NC State, but could not quite do it. Uh, the worst, I, I still think the worst rivalry game this year, aggregate record-wise, is going to be the uh, whatever they call the Virginia Tech Virginia thing. Does he even have a name? It's, it it's does, probably. It like, does. I just can't remember it. Lord Jefferson. I think it's the Commonwealth Cup or something like that. All right, I can see that. But uh, it, it could be like Lord Jefferson's dueling glove. Um, Lord Jefferson's slave driving whip. 
Yeah. <laughs> that would be the perfect one, wouldn't it? Uh, Indeed. Elsewhere, Toledo all but punches their Maxian ship ticket with a win in an extremely foggy game in Ypsilanti, so much that you couldn't really see what was going on on the broadcast. <laughs> did you see any of that? No, but uh, if you recall what I did, I, I was listening to some of that because Saturday morning I, I, I ran a 5K in Kensington Park over in Milford with the dogs. It was around a lake. Or so I was led to believe. <laughs> yeah, keep, keep a close the eye on the ground. Silent Hill. Keep a close eye on the ground unless you run into the lake. But again, remember, the game is in Ypsilanti. Their field is gray. So yep. if it's foggy. <laughs> I Miami just, and UVA, while we were talking about the, on the ACC, uh, UVA, of course, played one of the stupidest games I've seen last week against Georgia Tech. They decided to one-up themselves by... Uh, Playing a four-overtime game that finished 14-12 to with no touchdowns. So they, this game approaching the Penn State-Illinois game, like the meme of the guy in the pink bodysuit approaching Bain with his arms stretched out. You know the one I'm talking about. Oh, yeah. Um, where it's like, yeah, it's not this, it's not as good. But it's a, re- it's a reasonable challenger, and it's funny as hell that this is happening. Elsewhere, I just saw that BYU lost again, and so they've fallen to four and five now after... At, Unless, maybe I'm overestimating this, but they were certainly ranked, and ranked pretty high. You might be thinking of, like, last year. Am I? I really think you are. Let's have some dead air right at the end of our podcast as I figure that out. They are four and five, and... Oh, I can't find, I mean, they started the season at USF number 25. Oh, they b- did beat Baylor. Yeah, and after that, they were ranked like 10, 12, 14, somewhere in that range. So their highest ranking would have been when they played Oregon, and yeah, they were ranked number 12. You're right. See, I, I don't make up everything that I say, just most of it. Uh, and so they fall to 4 and 5. Road games at a couple of kind of disgraced former West Coast powers as Boise State and Stanford... Or in the way they have, a, I, I forget, their other game is a cupcake, so they just need to win either the trip to Boise or the trip to Palo Alto. And speaking of Stanford, oh, this is a perfect, I was wondering how we were going to work it in, but this is perfect. News that broke yesterday as well. Stanford suspended their mascot for the rest of the season after he went out, the tree went out onto the field holding a sign that said, Stanford hates fun. To which Stanford said, God damn right. We're glad you're a Stanford man. You're educated and you know a lot of things about the world. We're suspending you. I'll tell you what. If I don't understand why you needed to have a sign holding up that Stanford hates fun. All the evidence was there when they rejected the student body's proposal for their replacement mascot when they decided not to be the Indians anymore. You know what that was, right? The robber barons. Can you imagine the Stanford robber barons? That's what the student body voted for them to be called. Live human mascot like Notre Dame leprechaun, but it's a guy in a three-piece suit with a monocle on a top head. Are you kidding me? That would have yeah, been the best thing been ever. The, yes, it would have been the Stanford robber barons. That was what the student body chose, but Stanford hates fun. Exhibit Z, right? So when I initially saw this story, I assumed that meant... So they're just not gonna they're just gonna go without a mascot the rest of the year because the mascot's Twitter handle indicated, hey, hey, you know what? I'm suspended for the rest of the year. Gonna be suspending all uh, tree posting activities. See you in a few months. And then later that night, another tweet from the same post. 
hey, this is previous Stanford mascot number 43. Uh, since number 44 is suspended, I'll be taking over. So you guys out there. So they called the previous mascot out of retirement to replace their disgraced mascot. <laughs> well, Stanford hates fun. University doesn't, but Stanford does. They should join the Big Ten. Your source for Big Ten Cog, it's off tackle, Empire!